0: Welcome to Formula 101, I'm Peyton, and this is not your average race recap of Formula One races. I'm gonna be talking about a lot of exciting things both on and off the track, and I'm so happy you guys are listening with me. Uh, This is gonna be a fun ride, so thanks for coming along. Hi, everyone, so welcome back, this is episode six. Uh, I'm titling this one, Facts and Figures, and this is actually going to be part one of a two-part series Uh, But I wanted to spend today and the next episode going decade by decade and talking about the important figures in Formula One, why they were so good and what records they hold, even if they don't exist today, but if they did exist at that time. So I'm going to be starting today from the 50s, going all the way up to the 1980s. And then the next episode, I'll pick up where I left off and we'll go from the 90s up to the present here in 2020, because we've had quite a lot of records being broken, especially this season in 2020, that are worth talking about. But that's what we're going to cover in the next two episodes. So, to start off, we're going to be in the 1950s. And obviously, this is, I'm starting here because this is when Formula One started. 1950 was the very first year of the official F1 championship. And at this time, F1 really already took on the mantle of being this pioneer of automotive and technological innovation, of kind of being the industry and the group that were always going to be looking to create and push the boundaries of engineering and speed when it comes to vehicles. And so the first actual official F1 race took place in May of 1950 in Silverstone, so in the UK. And actually, the very first race had Queen Elizabeth and Princess Margaret in attendance. And they, I think, have been the only royal members of the royal family that have attended races. And now at the time, this decade saw that there was not the normal 20 drivers on the grid that we see now. Normally, it's, I don't know, 20 to 22 in F1. During this time, they would have often around 39 or 40 cars on the grid, actually. And there were no seat belts. There were very, very few safety measures, which kind of in hindsight of what happened this last weekend with Romain Grosjean is kind of scary to think about. And so the first official championship was won by Giuseppe Farina, and he was an Italian racer. He won his first uh, championship with Alfa Romeo and would later race with Ferrari. And so there are a lot of names in each of these eras that I'm going to talk about that you're going to recognize, because I want to highlight the big ones that I have learned about, have read about, and the ones that kind of people might throw around or reference when they're talking about the sport in general. So first name is Juan Manuel Fangio. And there's a great documentary about him on the US Netflix. I don't know about any other Uh, servers or anything, but on the US one, I know it's there and I recommend checking it out because it does a great job spelling out his impact and background. And they talk to and interview a lot of people, not just in F1, but in the wider automotive industry and talking about how Fangio played a role in them starting their businesses and building their cars. I think they talked to uh, someone who runs Maserati and actually Mr. Pagani, the guy who started the Pagani car company. And so Fangio won five world drivers titles between 1951 and 1957, and this was with four different teams. So this is actually huge to think about because considering where our champions are now, like Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel, and even Michael Schumacher, is that they won their championships with one team, pretty much. Seb won all of his with Red Bull, Lewis won all but one with mercedes So for Fangio to win a championship with four different teams and four different cars is a massive achievement and something that people take into account when they're talking about the greatest drivers of all time. And he holds the highest winning percentage in Formula One history at 46%. So this meant that he won nearly half of the races he entered. So he won 24 out of the 52 races he entered. And again, as I said, he's regarded as one of the best and talk, and certainly kind of brought up in the conversation of who might be the best. Now, second in the fifties I want to talk about is Alberto Ascari, and he was a really famous Ferrari driver. So specifically with Ferrari is what people know him about. And his 1952 season is one people really highlight because it was an absolute masterclass in that he won all six races he entered. So now in 2020, we have nearly 20 races. Back in the 50s, there were definitely not that many. There were six at this time. And for Ascari to win every single race he entered, I mean, that's absolute domination. And he not only won every single race, but he got all of the fastest laps in those races. So that meant that he got all of the possible points that a person could get in a single season. And he unfortunately did pass away after a fatal road car crash in Monza in 1995, but a corner was named after him uh, at that track in his honor. Now, third in 1950 is Sir Sterling Moss, and he finished runner up to uh, his great rival Fangio in three consecutive seasons from 1955 to 1957 but he finally did it and won uh, the championship in 1958. And now he actually holds some really cool speed records for road legal cars that are not Formula One related, but his powerful act of sportsmanship concerning a fellow racer Mike Hawthorne is what a lot of people remember about him. So during the Portuguese Grand Prix, his championship rival for that year was Mike Hawthorne. And Hawthorne's car actually stalled on track on this escape road that was right near the circuit. And Moss decided to get out of the car and bump start Hawthorne's car to get him going again. And Hawthorne would go on to actually win that race and win the championship that year, taking it from Moss. And so for him to go out of his way to help his rival and ultimately lose everything that year in the process is something people really put to his name and think about him in a great way because of his sportsmanship. Also during this time, the honorable mention for this decade would be Jack Brabham, who won three championships. He would go on to have a team. His name will be mentioned quite a few times in this episode. Uh, as well as Mike Hawthorne and Peter Collins. So those are some names that you might hear a little less often, but are nonetheless associated with the 1950s. Now to move on, let's get into the 1960s. So this was a big year, kind of big turning point for Formula One, and that there were a lot of names that would become synonymous with Formula One and are ultimately really cemented in the history books. And this era saw the rise of commercial sponsorship in Formula One. There were more aerodynamic innovations, and they were using Ford Cosworth V8s, so there were more powerful engines. And I would say the first person I want to talk about in the 60s is Jim Clark, and he really ranks up there towards the top of who's the best of all time, Uh, and a lot of people bring him up specifically for the statistics that kind of back his name and the winning percentages. And so he was from Scotland and began racing in 1963. He won two championships and is mainly known for racing with Lotus. Now, he raced in a lot of other series at the same time as he was racing in Formula One. Normally, currently, we think about the drivers just being in Formula One. They're not doing anything at the same time. They're only Formula One racers. But considering that during this time, there weren't that many F1 races in a season, and they were kind of spaced out, there was a lot more time between races... A lot of drivers would jet off to other formulas or racing leagues in the meantime to keep their skills sharp, to have fun, to win something else. So they weren't just confined to Formula One. And Jim Clark did this a lot. He was actually one of the first ones that were really known for this act, and he was immensely successful in those. He actually won the Indy 500. Now, he did unfortunately pass away in a crash at a Formula Two event in Hockenheim in Germany in 1968. Uh, And at the time of his death, he was only 32. And one can kind of only imagine how many more championships or wins he would have had had he not crashed. But at the time, he had won more Grand Prix races, so 25, and achieved more pole positions, 33, than any other driver. Since then, obviously, those have been surpassed. But for that time, that success was really massive. And he was incredibly naturally gifted and kind of doing research for this. The, the thing that a lot of drivers and a lot of articles and journalists talked about was that he made racing look easy. The driving just flowed for him and that he, he made it look like it was it was the easiest thing in the world and, and that driving was no big deal to him. Now, second in the 60s, I would highlight is Graham Hill. And if the name kind of sounds familiar or the last name does, and you watch the Sky Sports UK broadcast for Formula One or the ESPN broadcast in the States, you've seen his son, Damon Hill, as a commentator alongside Martin Brundle and Ted Kravitz. And now Graham Hill was the only person in history to have won the Triple Crown of motorsport. I've mentioned this a few times before, I think, in past episodes, but this Triple Crown means a win in Monaco in Formula One, a win at the Indy 500, and a win at the 24-hour of Le Mans. So Graham Hill is the only person ever to have done this. A lot of drivers and people have gotten two of them, but never three except for him. Now he raced from 1958 to 1975, and he won two world championships in 1962 and 68. He did get to race alongside Jim Clark uh, and would move to Lotus in the mid 60s. Now he was really known for being fabulous at Monaco. He won there five times, which is a huge number, even by today's standards for a driver to have that many wins at a single track. Uh, And he was so he was great around the streets of Monaco. And and that was really his best track out of all of them. Now, the last one here is Sir Jackie Stewart, and he was nicknamed the Flying Scott. So he started in 1965 and was quick to get on the podium in his second race. And overall, he won three championships throughout his career. His first actual F1 race wasn't even as an official signed driver. He was a stand-in, actually, for Jim Clark at Lotus, uh, but was signed as a permanent driver with then team BRM alongside Graham Hill. Now, he was known as a very intelligent driver and that as fast as he was, he still did a great deal of calculated thinking uh, and analyzing while he was driving, which is no small feat considering how quickly those cars went and how little safety measures and help from the pit wall and the the engineers and all those things that the current drivers have now. And he was really instrumental actually in improving the safety of motor racing and really campaigned for better medical facilities and track improvements at the circuits. So this was sparked by the death uh, of a teammate and friend, Francois Sever at Watkins Glen Racetrack in 1973. And this actually saw him withdraw from racing altogether. He stepped away completely. And so he decided that he was going to be incredibly dedicated to advocating for safety changes in the sport. Again, I can hearken this back to what happened with Romain Grosjean at the Bahrain GP last weekend, and that safety kind of comes in waves in Formula One, and that sometimes only when these massive things happen, will safety change and become an issue of conversation. Uh, But that's something I probably will save for another episode because I could talk about it for a while. But during the 60s, there was also John Surtees. He raced in both F1 and motorcycle racing, actually. He won an F1 championship in 1964 and had uh, numerous motorcycle wins. He's really the only guy who's ever won uh, on the four wheels of Formula One and the two wheels of, of motorcycle racing. There also was Phil Hill, no relation to Graham Hill. He was America's first F1 champion in 1961. Uh, Although the season was marred by a tragic crash between Wolfgang von Tripps and Jim Clark, where spectators died. So that was really tough. Uh, And lastly, we have the New Zealander, Bruce McLaren, literally Mr. McLaren. He raced at this time. Uh, He initially grabbed the record for the youngest ever race winner of a Grand Prix when he won the USGP, aged 22 years and 80 days. Now the record is held by Max Verstappen at 18 years, 228 days. But he obviously did found his team in 1963, uh, called McLaren, and he won his first victory with his team in five years down the road in 1968. And again, the last honorable mention is Joachim Rint. He was most known for posthumously, if I'm saying that right, I don't know that word, winning a championship in 1970. But he was an incredibly quick driver with immensely fast refluxes uh, during his entire career, much of which he spent with Brabham and Lotus. Now, moving into the 1970s. So if you've seen the movie Rush, directed by Ron Howard, I think it came out maybe five, six, seven years ago, around that time, with Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Brühl, you've gotten a taste of 1970s Formula One, albeit tweaked and made much more dramatic by the Hollywood standards but they played very real racers and uh, who in real life were rivals. And I'll actually get into them in a second. But first I'm going to start with Emerson Fittipaldi. So he was a Brazilian racer who won two F1 championships in 1972 and 1974. He won the first one with Lotus and the second one with McLaren. And he actually had become the youngest man ever to claim the world championship title. Uh, But that record would only be broken in 2005 with Fernando Alonso. So it did last a really long time. And he did leave Formula One in 1980. He took a few years off before returning with another open wheel series uh, and did win the Indy 500 in 1989. So a few years later. Now, since then, his grandson, Pietro, is in racing and he's actually going to be making his Formula One debut for Romain Grosjean. In Bahrain this weekend, considering the Frenchman is not well enough to race in this next race. Now getting back to rush, Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Bruhl are the two actors. I think Daniel Bruhl plays Nicky Lauda in this. So Nicky was an Austrian driver who raced from the early 1970s to the mid eighties kind of, and he won three championships. Now, he's the only driver in Formula One history to have been the champion for both Ferrari and McLaren, considering those have kind of been the two large names and really famous names throughout the history of the sport. And he was with Ferrari from 1974 to 1977, and he joined Brabham Alfa Romeo in '78. But he actually, quote unquote, retired a year later to pursue his interest in airplanes. I think he actually has three airlines that he started and sold or merged with other airlines. Uh, And he returned in 1982 with McLaren, where he won his last championship in 1984, before actually retiring for good in 1985. And if you know anything about Niki Lauda, is that you probably know about him from his crash. So he was actually seriously injured in a crash at the 1976 German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring, during which his Ferrari burst into flames. And he really actually came close to dying because of all the fumes from the fire uh, and suffering a lot of severe burns on his face that you can you can still see. Uh, but he would actually come back only six weeks later. He was not out for a long time. I think he only missed two months of racing or maybe it's only two races, but he came back incredibly quickly and just jumped right back in the car. And so a good chunk of his career, as the movie depicts, he was at odds with James Hunt, who I'll mention in a second, but he was his main rival who, even though they were friends off track, they were bitter rivals on track. And so after retiring from racing, Nicky had various jobs in the industry. He didn't leave racing entirely, and most notably as a non-executive chairman with the Mercedes F1 team. I'm sure if you watch the races, you would see him usually sitting right next to Toto Wolf in the garage. He had that famous red cap on, um, but he did pass away last year, so he's no longer with us. Now, on the flip side, we have James Hunt, who was a British Grand Prix driver who only won one championship in 1976. Um, but was very much known for his kind of playboy style. He really a- encapsulated kind of those old F1 ideas of having all the women hang off you and and being very much uh, into the fame and money. Uh, but that's not to say he was a bad person at all. I'm not making that assumption. I never knew him, uh, but that's from kind of what they try and poke at in the movie, and you'll see a lot of pictures of him with girls off his arms. But he entered F1 in 1973, And he was kind of known for having a rather reckless driving style. He, especially in Formula 3 and a couple of the series that he participated in before coming into Formula 1, he was definitely known for having a kind of off-the-wall style for driving. But he did join McLaren in 1975 and would only retire four years later in 1979. As I said, his big rival during the latter portion of his career was Nikki Lauda, but the two were friends despite that on track fighting. Nikki stated that James was among the very few I liked and even fewer I respected. So uh, there was definitely a camaraderie between the two of them. And considering Nicky's kind words to him, I would say he was quite a good driver. Now let's get on to the next decade, which is the 1980s. And this is when F1's search for power really kicked into high gear. This is when turbocharged engines were the end all be all for the sport. They were what you had to have. It was all about power uh, and corporate sponsors got more and more involved in the sport. the The price of admission and participation in F1 was rising. And frankly, to this day is continuing to rise. And they also were using carbon fiber. That was becoming more of the norm for building the cars to help make them a bit more safer as well as lighter and thus could go faster. Again, it was all about the pursuit of speed. Now, the first name I want to mention in this era is Alan Prost. And he was one of the most consistent and statistically successful drivers of the 1980s. And he debuted with McLaren in 1980 before going to Renault later in his career. He's actually still with Renault, I believe, in some capacity. You've likely seen him in the garage there, as I believe he's an advisor. He won four championships in total over his career, and he had fabulous rivalries with Ayrton Senna, Nigel Mansell, and Nelson Piquet. And so he was actually nicknamed the professor for his smooth style of racing and his very intellectual approach to the sport. Now, the next person I want to talk about is someone really near and dear to my heart. Uh, This is Ayrton Senna. And even though I never watched him race, I was not alive to ever watch him. Uh, Ever since I watched the documentary about him on Netflix, he's held a really special place in my heart, and I think he is important to an incredible, massive amount of people across the world for the impact that he had. Now, he was a Brazilian who won three championships in 1988, 89, and 91, and he raced for Tolman, Lotus, Williams, and McLaren, and honestly was really remembered for his battles with Prost. And showing off his incredible, masterful driving, especially in wet conditions. And so he won his first title with a really good drive in Japan after actually stalling on the grid in 1988. And so unfortunately, he did pass away in a crash in May of 1994 at Imola. uh, And that whole weekend that this happened was really plagued by tragedy. So earlier in the weekend, even before the race happened, there was a death. Uh, Ronald Ratzenberger was a fellow racer, and he was killed after his front wing broke and sent him careening into a concrete barrier on the track. And this would be something actually really important to Senna, as he would go directly after this, I think even the morning before the race, to speak with Alain Prost about reestablishing the GPDA, or the Grand Prix Drivers Association, which is something that still exists today. I believe is actually headed by Sebastian Vettel and Romain Grosjean. But it was a group put together to improve the safety for drivers. And I think there's actually video of Seta speaking in the documentary on Netflix uh, in a driver's briefing prior to the race that weekend. And he's voicing his opinions about whether or not they should be driving, considering what happened with Ratzenberger, as well as speaking on the usage of a certain car. I believe it was a Porsche as the safety car. So tragically, he would crash in this race, uh, and his death was a massive shock to the world. In the documentary, I know I keep bringing it up, but it's really powerful to watch. You see the literal millions of people who were uh, waiting for his funeral to happen and were lining the streets to talk about him and to to mourn his death. Uh, And because of that crash, many safety improvements were made surrounding crash barriers, redesigned tracks, having higher crash safety standards. So yes, it did take a massive tragedy for the sport to make changes, but they did make big changes because of it. And a foundation has been set up in his honor by his family, and he's donated millions of dollars to disadvantaged children across the globe. And as I said, he has been commemorated in hundreds of small and large ways. In not only the racing world but also far beyond that and so it's really clear that his impact on the world was was far and it was wide but moving on to the next driver and that is nelson Piquet. so he won three world drivers titles he raced with Brabham, williams lotus and banneton but was never really quite a dominant driver he kind of had what the f1 website actually calls a certain stealth about his racing And he was also remembered quite well for his wits, for his funny comments that did sometimes get him into trouble. Uh, But many loved him, but also many quite strongly disliked him. So it was kind of a love or a hate thing. And the next driver on the docket is Nigel Mansell. So I got to kind of become familiar with Mansell through his mustache, his facial hair, which sounds stupid to say. But if you know him, you see the pictures of him where he has this fabulous mustache that was a little bit of a part of his uh, claim to fame. But his career spanned 15 seasons, actually, from 1980 to 1995, and he won his only championship in 1992. Now, he raced with Lotus, Williams, and Ferrari, but he left in 1992 before briefly returning to Formula One in 94 and 95. Over his career, he actually fought really hard with Nelson Piquet and Alain Prost, and was a very determined, very aggressive driver with kind of a go big or go home mentality. So he was known for having a bit of theater to his performances, both on and off track, and was certainly no stranger to stoking the fire of conflict among drivers. Now, he held the record for the most polls set in a single season, but that was broken in 2011 by Sebastian Vettel. And uh, Mansell stated that he only drove as hard as he knew how, which I think really sums up both his racing style and his career as a whole. Now, the honorable mentions for the 80s is Gerard Berger and Gilles Villeneuve. Gerard Berger actually raced for 14 seasons from 1984 to 1997 and was a fabulous driver who just didn't have a lot of wins and fame to his name because he happened to race at the same time as the greats of Senna and Prost. But nonetheless, he was a fabulous driver. And lastly is Gilles Villeneuve. So he actually never won a championship, but he's remembered for his immense skill. um, And ultimately, unfortunately, he did crash qualifying session in 1984 in Belgium, which ended his life. But his son, Jax, has continued his legacy and became Formula One's only Canadian to ever win the championship. And that's actually a record that still stands to this day. All right. So our history lesson part one is done for the day. I'm thinking I was, you know, when I started this, I was thinking I would be able to get in everything from the 1950s to the present. Clearly I bit off more than I could chew. And so, as I said, next episode, I'm going to bring it all the way up to 2020 and we'll finish up with our little history Uh, and this, I think is important stuff to remember. It's a great foundation for racing. It's things I honestly don't remember all the time. I have a little, actually a list in my phone, in the notes app that have some names to remember so that whenever I'm feeling bored or forgetting something, I can go back and check that and drill it back into my brain. Uh, but to end, I'll leave you with this quote by Steve McQueen. I actually love this quote. I, I think about it all the time but he said, life is racing. Everything else is just waiting. Uh, and I think that really speaks to the indescribable kind of thrill and passion of racing, why I love it so much, why its fan base is so wide and so diverse, uh, and why racing is just so much fun in general. So again, that's all I have today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all the comments that I've gotten uh, on social media. Please again, come find me, come say hi. Please give me any uh recommendations or topics you want me to talk about. I love to hear from you. So thank you guys so much. And I will see you again in a few weeks.